Hi, it's Jasmine. You know, that girl who did you know what way before the internet ever existed. Join me and my special guest every week as we talk about anything and everything because nothing is too taboo. So punch your ticket and get on board the crazy train with me, Jasmine Saint Clair. All aboard! Welcome to a new episode of Crazy Train with Jasmine Saint Clair. Thank you so much for tuning in again. This week's guest is a very special one, but before I get into it, please do not forget to rate and review Crazy Train with Jasmine on Apple iTunes, and also um, subscribe to my YouTube page, subscribe to the podcast on Apple iTunes and Spotify. But most importantly, if you would like to hear a very um, oh, let's say controversial and never heard before interviews, never seen before, get a membership to my YouTube page. Get a membership. It's so worth it. There's also um, a live chat sometimes, live streams onto YouTube. So check it out. It's Crazy Train Podcast on YouTube as well. We're in this era where it's kind of righteous to be a victim. And people become a victim because they want to feel relevant or important. Not knowing that it could possibly ruin someone's life. Now, Not all victims have a vagina. I know some people may hate me for saying that, but everyone deserves to have their, um, you know, their part of a story heard. And then it's up to you to judge them. Or actually, it's up to other people to judge them, such as God or whoever their higher being is. But with that said, I feel as though there's too much sloppy documentary filmmaking. When I saw A Dangerous Breed, that documentary filmmaker seemed like he was out for something else and pushing to make Teddy Hart the bad person. Now, I've known Teddy for quite some time. And actually, I think he made a cute little outfit for me years ago. Okay, maybe he goes to his own, you know, rhythm and does things on his own, but doesn't make him a murderer. It does not make him a bad person. We all make mistakes in life. And I'm sure I could find something on each and every single one of you out there if I wanted to, but I don't do that. You know, I judge people on the way they treat me and not by some documentary filmmaker who seemed like he was either A, probably trying to get laid or just to make someone look bad. And this is how it appeared. In any case, who takes the accountability for Petty Hart's career now? Nobody wants to hire him. Is it the documentary filmmaker? Is it the production company? I want you to listen to the interview with an open mind and an open heart. Maybe open legs. No, uh, just an open mind. And let me know what you think. Here's Teddy Hart. What's your ethnic background? Because you look exotic. <laughs> Greek. I think we're Greek, uh, Sicilian, uh, Russian, Welsh, and Scottish, I think, is what we are, the, the parts. My mom's Greek, my dad's Italian, uh, Russian, and uh, yeah, I think we're like kind of like a mix, though, too. Yeah, I can only imagine. Now, I gotta ask you this, because I know that I always bring this promo up, okay? So, 
The Feinstein incident, that was really funny with the promo that they cut from yours to do the honorable thing. But when you did the one promo, I'm going to turn you into my prostitutes. To, I don't know which show you were at, but your promos are so funny and so natural. Did you actually practice everything or you? I think you're just a natural. That's just me. I did, I just tried to keep it on the fly. Like I always thought of it as like a rapper. Like you, if you can, if you have an interview that you need to write down and cut, that's because you're beyond uh, WWE TV type of thing, and you know who you're going to be working long term, and you know the you know the gimmick and the angle and what you can say. But most of those interviews for the indies, I thought were uh, more fun if they were on the fly, like a shoot interview on the fly kind of. So I would just, you know, I had bullet points in my head that I thought were good. Uh, you know, my my kind of thing was a lot of those guys were stale and the indie guys were coming up. The newer guys wanted to do all this stuff and a whole bunch of moves and uh, the lazy fucking fat guys wanted to sit around and, and hold the headlock. And so we were at a, I guess a, a crossroads at, at that time and place of who was going to push the envelope into, they always say less is more in wrestling, but when you're trying to get a job as an indie wrestler, that doesn't really work. You want to get as much in as you can. Uh, that's also the way you train and learn stuff. So if you're doing, you know, football practices and you, you know, you got a big game coming up, that's obviously not going to kill yourself in the practice, but the practice for us, that's the only game we have was going to the indie shows. There wasn't no other options. Most of us uh, that took that indie indie circuit, uh, we took it as like a, I guess, kind of a crash course and uh, figuring these moves out and what you could do and what you couldn't do. Because the last thing you want to do is hurt somebody with these moves you're trying to do or, you know, cutting a promo is one thing. I'd like it to be somewhat true. If it hurts a little bit because it's true, then you can you can dig in on somebody personally. But most of the promos were I th from from my thing was trying to point out the athleticism of me and the lack of training and preparation for these other guys. As an athlete, wrestling was supposed to be a sport. I looked at it as a sport, not just. Um, a show so i always wanted some realistic guy you know the, if the guys were training a lot of guys are smaller now which is completely fine but they still go to the gym and they still do uh you know all of the necessary practice stuff to wrestle at a safe at a safe pace and safe style and be innovative and i think we pushed the envelope especially like uh back in the day there was probably six of us that really pushed the envelope i, I talk about sanjay dutt was one of them ruckus was one of them aj styles was one of them like paul london was one of them spanky uh american dragon there was few like uh indie guys like that were in japan that were coming up that were unbelievable but there was like a group of us uh, jack evans myself that were just an amazing red i got to make sure to mention him too because they invented a lot of the moves and invented the style so um that was really that was something we focused on for years just to be the most innovative wrestlers in the world and then somebody had to back it up on the mic and take the take it on the chin from all the guys and that was sort of I was delegated to be the guy that got in shit for doing anything and everything. So I was usually the guy that took the the whipping boy that took the blame for pointing out the obvious that fans didn't want to see this shit. And they, they blame it on psychology and they say it's entertaining when uh, I didn't think the fans were cheering that much. And from what I saw, for I thought was a fairly honest depiction of what the audience wanted to see. They wanted to see fast paced movie style, matrix style fighting scenes and athletics and acrobatic stuff that nobody was going to do in the world. And that you'd absolutely know after that show that that guy was close to being in a wheelchair. He really risked his life for you. And he did everything he could to make sure you walked away with that, that satisfaction and feeling of wanting to keep coming back to that show and support that federation, which includes all the guys in that federation. So I always thought about it as a football team. 
Uh, I don't get to be the quarterback, and nobody really likes when Teddy Hart comes into town because he's the measuring stick. But the fans that are there definitely appreciate when you see a high-quality wrestler who is what they say a special attraction because they bring me in from another country and they spend a lot of money compared to what they're paying these guys normally. You know, fifty bucks, a hundred bucks. My my pay would be considerably more than that back in the day. So the respect level was that I was in your building and I'd make sure the fans came back to see your show, but it's not my show. I didn't grow up with the promoter. I didn't grow up in the territory. I wasn't training with those guys. So the clicks were always weird with me for uh, indie wrestling clicks. If you're in ring of honor, you had a group of guys that were there before I was there. If you're in CZW, they were there before I was there. So it would have been like guys coming from the States to Canada. If they came to Calgary, they would have came to stampede wrestling. And then it would have been me and TJ and Harry and Jack and, uh, you know, hotshot Johnny Devine, guys like that, making the decisions on what they wanted to do. So I always had to come in and walk on eggshells in some capacity, also keep my confidence and my mystique. And uh, it got confused for being arrogant a lot of the times when I really thought I was a nice guy and I was humble and I tried to go out of my way to to uh, interact with the guys. But you have, what, an hour or two before a show to interact, plus remember the whole match you got to go out there and do. And then after that, you usually go back to the hotel and catch the flight back home to Canada, which is like a 10-hour flight with customs and so, um, point about the promos, I know I, I go all over the place, but yeah, I considered myself one of the best promo guys for actually realistically talking about the business as a shoot and as a work at the same time and trying to incorporate that, that line and, uh, fans are starting to get pretty smart, especially during maybe 10 years ago, they really started to know what was going on. They understood the chemical, they understood the uh, chemistry between guys and the way moves were being done and the, you know, how a good move is supposed to look. So you get that holy shit chant, you know, and that was that was my argument with a lot of the guys that um, you could stack those moves one after another, after another, after another. And if you did it right, you'd have a huge ovation from the crowd in which I thought created uh, a value that you were able to get the fans to make some noise. And that was the measuring stick or, you know, that was the scale of how you decided if you were going to get to come back or not or if the promoter was going to bring you back. So, and I think that mattered up until a certain point, and then it got to the point where the cancel culture and all the politics, uh, the better you did and the more fans you got, the more of a threat you were to their the little group of guys that were in that promotion. And if you weren't going to be a regular, uh, bringing me in more than once was almost like giving somebody a free cheeseburger, and then they want to come back and get the free cheeseburger again, and they won't get it. So... Uh, the less the less Teddy Hart, the better for a lot of the guys because this is a competition sport where if I run the fastest, jump the highest, and fucking talk, you know, back it up, then sometimes, uh, you know, it's taken wrong. And for that reason, I think even right now with uh, with the Joey Ryan situation, with my a lot of guys, I don't think you should be able to cancel somebody and take away their living based on secondhand stories. If the cops got us, that's one thing. Like Feinstein. I thought got away with murder on his situation, but he never got arrested either. So that yeah, happened. Chase down the street. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, it's insane. But eventually, he gets to come back, and um, you know that's to me. I was I was happy in some capacity that he got to come back because I felt bad for anybody. People make mistakes, and it's a shitty mistake. That's a big one to make. I'm not forgiving or saying anything, but. I live in a pretty open world of there's a lot of crazy shit that happens out there. And I ask God the same as I ask, uh, you know, a brother or sister to have forgiveness and understanding and empathy. And if they can put themselves in that situation, it seems like people have gotten really cold and judgmental. And then if you pull back the onion, you know, peel back the onion, you look at some of the guys that are the ones pointing the fingers. They're the ones that actually have convictions for criminal records, for uh, spousal abuse or domestic violence or shit, shit like that. And they're the ones throwing the, uh, 
throwing the punches and throwing the bricks and they live in a glass house. And a lot of the times I just, I didn't have time. Like after this, this is my first podcast, uh, after the WWE, the Peacock and, uh, whatever Bloomhouse fiasco that they pulled on me. So I didn't even really want to talk after I, I was, I won't say depressed, just disappointed in the way the, uh, and the way the world works and that way you can say something without having any proof just by adding the word supposedly or allegedly or maybe or this was hypothetical we're not sure if it actually happened but there was this alien that landed on the moon and fucking blah 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 and they make it's like it's it's absolutely complete bullshit and it's almost like from a fucking science fiction movie where there this you're watching somebody ruin somebody's life based on shit that never never happened at all and it's just somebody making it up and then you got a form to say it and three morons agree to it and all of a sudden now that's fact and i'm being judged for shit that never happened in my life you know well yeah but with that said it's a few things okay so first of all when i said this earlier victims don't always have vaginas to me you're the victim like the second i saw those skanks in the beginning of it i'm like you know what something doesn't smell right and it's not like from between their legs it's just they don't smell right like it doesn't look right then I'd like to run a background check on the documentary filmmaker that is what I would like to do I would like my lawyer to go do that which I'm going to have him do because he needs accountability he has to be held accountable which we're you know we'll discuss it you know privately you know but he did sloppy documentary filmmaking yeah, and some of the worst you could do. Exactly. And I don't know if he jacks off in his mother's basement or lives there with his cats or what he does, if he has whatever. And the, the sad thing is about that, he has a wife and a daughter, and I was always nice to him because I knew he was trying to get the thing with that documentary is I paid for most of that documentary myself okay. to be done over the years. He never put money in. And so when he talks about that in the documentary, you have to remember he's got the power of God. He's going back and picking and choosing anything he wants over 10 years that can make me look bad based on knowing the ending, what he wants. He knows the narrative. So there was 70 people interviewed for that thing over the years, over 10 years, not one positive thing was said, not one everything that was positive i think there was 50 people that they considered positive interviews they had another 25 names of wrestlers and people that agreed that if they were going to be asked questions about teddy hart they had a positive story or something nice to say none of those interviews were done and the 50 that were done in the past 10 years none of them were shown and so i mean the guy that really owns the footage this is the complicated thing was fred uh, the guy that fred croach is a cameraman so he stole the footage from the producer who he'd been working with and sold the footage behind that producer's back and now is being sued by the original producer of the show, which was supposed to be called, uh, I think, uh, Teddy Hart Truth and Tribulations, or there was another one called Heart Attack. Um, so when I was being talked to or brought back, this show is basically about if you were going to get off probation. I had six-year probation if I was going to be able to get that finished what I planned on doing with my life, any businesses I was doing, uh, workshops, wanting to go back to Canada, thinking about going to Lebanon or Dubai for wrestling schools, uh, native reservations we work with in Canada, what will happen when you can finally go back to Canada freely because I've been away from, I haven't been home in six years. So including the girls charging me, I was facing 20 years in jail for those two girls. I, on my own accord, I went back willingly no one forced me i have a dual passport no extradition law in canada can come to the states and grab me so i could stay in canada i could stay in the states for for 30 40 years if i thought i did it 
Why would I go back and take a chance? Unless I absolutely knew that was bullshit. Most guys are going to say, you know what? This two girls saying I sexually assaulted them and confined them. They must have a load of evidence. <clears throat> Obviously, they don't. And I know this because I have all the evidence. I have the hard drives. I have all of the stuff. All they did was file bankruptcy, keep all the property and steal my money, which was involved in any businesses I had with them and my cats, which was a, a business that continues to grow. But that's my bread and butter. And that's also my heart and soul. The cats and the outfits meant more to me than the wrestling. I wrestled as a hobby uh, since basically 2000. Uh, when I signed with WWE, it was 1998, and I was the youngest guy in the world to sign. And um, I already knew the schedule was was really, really crazy, and that I was all by myself. By the time I got up there, Owen was doing the Blue Blazer gimmick, and he was quite upset with the direction it was going. He was having problems with his wife at home, his marriage. I wasn't, wouldn't say it was falling apart, but it was definitely being strained based on him working with Deborah. And I think WWE knew that at the time that uh, it was some kind of punishment almost because they knew that Owen's wife was vocal as she's obviously been for the last 15 or 20 years completely against and hard to work with. And nobody really uh, gets to properly enjoy Owen Hart being a WWE Hall of Fame or Owen Hart uh, old matches. You know, there's not a lot of stuff out there because of all the, the shit with the lawsuits and stuff. But that situation, um, I kind of realized after Brett punched Vince that my career would probably never be what it was supposed to be. And I felt terrible for Harry and TJ and Natty and Jack and anyone that came from the dungeon because we went from being untouchable to basically uh, blackballed. And anyone that came from our, our company or our group was in that same boat as being blackballed. And thank God Jericho and uh, Chris Benoit didn't suffer that much from that situation. But everybody else that had anything to do with the hearts was basically jobbed out or never given an opportunity to do anything. And I'd say that Tyson, Kidd, and Natalia made the absolute best of their situation because those two are, are very smart workhorses. And they didn't complain and they're not political. And they just shut their mouth and played the game. And that's how they stayed up there. And I think it was also they needed somebody still to collect all the money from the Hart family revenue for, you know, the, the, ar the archives, all the video stuff, all of the uh, royalty checks, stuff like that. The Hart name still carries a, a big weight. So Natalia put it on her shoulders and carried a 5,000 pound fucking monkey across the desert with TJ who broke his neck and still shut his mouth, played ball, ended up getting back into a situation where he's directly working with Vince McMahon, which was a dream of his. And he respected Vince more so much than the company. I think he respected Vince the most because we'd grown up with Vince as like a father figure because of what Brett had been through. And my grandfather was also a big, a huge fan of Vince McMahon's because our family had worked with the McMahon's for three generations. People forget it wasn't just a one generation, wasn't one thing. They'd worked together for years and years, 50 years or 60 years, something like that. They'd been working together. So when that happened, I kind of thought for sure uh, Brett's was the guy I wanted to be working with and under his blanket of protection because he was very smart and very political and he had all he was there for the longest period of time him and sean that was like a power struggle between the two the two lions you know in the jungle and uh triple h and sean and those guys played the game and they ended up winning and brett had to had to deal with that but after that brett's soldiers are us we're coming up after that and, and there's no leader for us to count on and he's going through terrible shit his brother dying a stroke a divorce uh, and then watching a lot of his friends die on TV over the next few years, because that was kind of at that time, uh, a lot of people were falling off. A lot of people were were passing away in wrestling. If you look at all the deaths that were 
in that year or not in that year, but in that 10 year period of time, it was astonishing how many guys we lost. Right. And I think that just overall uh, that impact took away from the business and it took away from the type of people that were being hired. And a lot of the alpha male, big, strong, kind of loud, cocky characters uh, that were real life guys, they got shifted into more of a quiet, subservient video game playing guy that was uh, willing to just basically do exactly. And that's fine. I understand doing what you're told completely also, though, but you have to have some sense of where you want to go independently uh, and what your character wants to be, because the guy writing the character in the back generally is not as aware of what's going to get over as the guy doing it himself. I, I would have to think that probably uh, The Rock did most of his own stuff and knew what he was going to do. And I would think that probably Shawn Michaels did most of his own stuff. There wasn't guys running Brett's stuff. I think those guys ran their own matches and had their own image. And they did what they wanted to do along the lines of what their character uh, in their heart, they believed that that character was all about. And I think the characters in wrestling now, me being a character and a shoot at the same time, it, it confused people. And uh, it rubbed people the wrong way. And I, I feel terrible if I could go back in time and massage things easier rather than coming in and doing things a certain way. Um, I, I just didn't realize the approach to the business. and I didn't realize how touchy people were and temperamental and the, how, how many backstabbers and guys that just talk a lot of shit because that's just the way of this business. It's not a team sport. Again, if, if my stats depended on how much you got paid and if I scored 100 touchdowns, the team wins, then everyone on the team loves me. And that's a real sport. And we all make money off victories. We all make money off of success. In wrestling, there's no victories and there's really no success unless you're friends with a promoter or you're friends with one of the bookers and uh, you're part of a certain group of guys and they protect their own guys. And again, me being from Canada was just the wrong place at the wrong time. And then being from the Hart family, I think was the worst family you could be uh, blessed with having usually would be a huge name and a, and a huge feather under your cap but to be there uh, as a fan watching Davey and Brett and Owen and Jim and the Hart Foundation and Brian Pillman on top and then two years later you're there and they're all gone and Owen's Owen's pissed off with with the situation and they're telling me that um, you know this is kind of the direction that they want my character to go in and I'm 170 pounds going shit like I don't know what's going on I'm I came up here for a tryout thinking this was sort of, uh, you know, just like a thanks from Owen today. They're going to give you a tryout. It wasn't, you know, I don't, nothing's going to probably come out of it. You're 170 pounds and the family's at war right now with WWE. But I went up there and had a seven day or 10 day dojo and got a contract as the youngest guy in the world and surprised everybody. And it was some of the proudest times in my life. But when I realized and I'm pretty sharp back then of the schedule, it scared the shit out of me. And, and automatically then you're forced to take, uh, at that at that size, they want you to jump. They don't. They're not going to say it. And I'm, I've always been politically correct with not blaming, but uh, taking steroids publicly. And I guess now at that age, at eighteen, all of a sudden I'm forced. You know, because I know there's a job out there, or there was a job offer. So I better get in shape and get as big as fast as I can. And then that becomes an, a never-ending cycle. You know, I've been on and off. I've had to take uh, steroids on and off for twenty years, and I never took a lot. So I never had any of the damage or abuse from what they said steroids are so bad. But I mean, the accumulation of it for 20 years, at, when you become 35, your sex drive is terrible. And you have, you don't, and that, I always said, like, I live with multiple girls and they have me like I'm a, some predator, I'm forcing sex on. I, I call myself like a fixed cat. 
where it, like, obviously I'm going to perform if I have to, I'm an athlete. Like it's like dancing, but I wasn't out there trying to fuck the whole world. I always was nice to those girls. I considered uh, more of a teacher and a trainer. And uh, because of chemical drug addiction on most of the people that I know, I never did those drugs. So that was something uh, that I was considered like a lifeguard. So a lot of girls would hang out with me because I didn't drink alcohol and I wasn't doing coke and I wasn't doing meth. And if I was doing fun drugs, then I would say marijuana is a fun drug. Uh, I'd say mushrooms are a fun drug. I would say if you're going to go to a rave, you did ecstasy, it's a fun drug. Guys all want to lie and bullshit. But I, I watched half the guys smoking crack and doing coke and hiding in their fucking closets and acting scared when I would see them off or I would know their lifestyle because at that stage it was connected. You know, everybody kind of what the wrestling scene was. And I'm glad the wrestling scene changed. I'm glad that they got a lot of cleaner guys and a better, better group of guys from what I see as the indie guys. Maybe it's different from what you see, but I mean, there's another whole, there's another whole group of guys out there that are wrestling for a hobby that are on wrestling to get a job in WWE. There's ones that know they're being watched already. So they're already playing the game and they're already doing, you know, then the guys that are open, open and vocal about what they do have nothing to hide. Chances are uh, they're probably not going to be the guys hired just based on being open and with stories. I've told too many stories of, of, picking you know picking up strippers or fucking running an escort agency or hanging out with porn stars or crazy shit that i've done and then people are like oh he's a fucking loose cannon he's a piece of shit or he's a bad guy it's like i never hurt anybody it's easy to take shots at me i'm not an internet guy i i, I have no websites i don't i don't i don't do my own facebook i'm not out there bitching on twitter uh, i always thought i met you i try to be nice to every human being i meet on the planet same thing when i was in jail I try to pray and eat with people and take care of people and share with people and be conscientious that this is a really tough world to live in and it's an ugly, nasty place, but you could look at it like that and be miserable all day or you could try to find the highlights of everything that's out there. If you've got something bad to say about somebody, I always try to find something good to say if I'm going to say something bad and I'll say something bad first because I want to be remembered saying something good after. So the last thing that comes out of my mouth about somebody would be something good. But a lot of people aren't good listeners, so they hear just the beginning of something and it flashes and all of a sudden they don't hear the rest of the conversation. So they hear Teddy Hart Hooker and it's like, well, if you realize prostitution is completely legal in Canada, you get a license to do it and you get a STD check every two weeks. So it's a business and those girls make two, three hundred thousand dollars a year. If you're going to judge someone for having sex or money. Like I say, then you're a fucking moron because that's the oldest thing in the world. That's how people have survived. And that's that's the only way we procreate. And that's the only way guys, I think, can be tolerated by women is if they give them some money to hear their bullshit. Because a lot of guys out there are headaches. And I say that ahead of time, like men as a species are vulgar and uh, I say kind of like pigs. But there is nice guys out there, too. And there's a lot of girls out there. Same thing. You might be in one type of business, but that doesn't mean that you're anything but a lady and a fucking and a, and a respected woman and a business person and that makes money and runs a business and takes care of her family and takes care of her animals and i just think people judge way too much in this world about stuff they know nothing about right they just get a small story uh, or you know some information that's secondhand or third hand and then all of a sudden that's their decision and that's the judgment they have and now you're being uh, persecuted like uh, i feel like a judge and jury has convicted me of guilty Okay, but here's the thing, like when I saw all of that, um, first and foremost, when someone is on drugs and they've had these addictions, that's not on you, right? You understand that. So in your last incident, as we call it, and by the way, I still have yet to go to Japanese Grill one day, but um, I really want to go. So uh, that last incident, now, a grown woman 
has kids, okay? Or we think is a grown woman. That's reasonable to say. Three you kids. have your kids and you leave your kids in a different country, right? To go yes. pursue wrestling somewhere else. So that's the Let me get this one thing straight. She was yes. never supposed to be a wrestler. Otherwise, I would have okay. left her in Calgary or Edmonton to train wrestling. Her whole point was she wanted to do MMA, which is a whole different ballgame. And we make money as agents for MMA because she can actually get a few fights. As an indie wrestler, she'll never get booked. She has no experience. It takes at least two years to get trained in wrestling. She was supposed to be an MMA fighter. That was the only reason we talked to her about anything to do with combat sports. Wrestling happened to be easy to float in. Oh, she's doing wrestling now because that's the story for the narrative. She never wanted to wrestle. Her dad used to wrestle. That was the only coincidence. That was her only thing that her dad was an indie wrestler way back in the day in Calgary. That girl was there to box and do MMA and get punched in the face and fight for real. Otherwise, she would have never been down there. So, okay. Sorry. So she made that choice. That's okay. She made that choice to leave Canada. Let me rephrase that. Absolutely. Leave her, leave her kids there, right? To yeah. go to a different country to train. Yeah. Now, being that you are part of the Hart family, people get seduced by that without you even doing much. I can imagine. You know, plus you're very charismatic. So, I believe, and this is me. What pissed me off the most about that, with that flub, that 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 Slobovian filmmaker, was this. They made it seem as though they're trying to say that you did something to her. She got out of jail. Okay. When you get out of jail from drugs and whatever else there is, you could just go like jump over to a different country, go, uh, go to like Cuba, go to Mexico or something, or get picked up by someone and something happens. You know, some people, when they get on drugs, they just go binge and they go missing for days. So, so I never thought that was on you. Huh? They did a full investigation on her. When you're done, I'll tell you, they did a full investigation yeah. on her. And they knew from the day she went missing about three weeks after that or a month, couple months after that, that I would never be involved in talking or seeing her because it's really hard unless you're a fucking Houdini or Copperfield and you're able to be in two places at once and being videotaped at the same time because they have me on video in one city working and doing something and they don't even know the details of that. I'll, I'll tell you the details because I got no, permission. I do want to know. I do want to know because this... Again, I feel as though the filmmaker and that company needs to be held accountable because you go out there interviewing people and not exposing the reality. And no one's trying to victim shame anyone. The victim in that would obviously have been you. Of course. And they're, and paying, they're never going to blame you. And they're paying those girls, every one of them, thousands of dollars for something that happened five years ago. So they got no money then. They're now, you know, hey, here's fucking three grand to badmouth your boyfriend who you couldn't get a judge or jury to deal with any of your bullshit allegations. They said not guilty, not guilty, and they charged them with contempt of court. So during that time is when I originally met that Sam Fiddler girl. And so she knew I was being charged. She knew and she knew it was all bullshit. Same thing with Machiko. Machiko and Sam, they were they met in uh, Dallas during WrestleMania. Machi goes to the little independent girl who said I beat her up and she was so traumatized and she did the, and she has two domestic violence on her record. We were pulled over in Oklahoma with three pounds of weed in our car because she kicked me in the face while we were driving because she had a, a tantrum that she couldn't, it's just stupid, but she, she was very uh, hot and cold because she took steroids. She wanted to jump on. She wanted to jump on a couple cycles of steroids. And people don't realize every girl I dated ended up doing steroids because not because of me, because they wanted to get steroids and girls. It it changes their chem chemistry and it gives them a, a totally different type of. Uh, I just I I saw them with her with, when she wasn't on anything. 
real cool, mellow, smoked weed when she was on testosterone. And it probably should have been a smarter coach about it. But it's hard to tell people what they want to do, especially if they've already heard it from other people before I met them. So Machu had been in wrestling before I met her. So she's like, I wanted to do a cycle. I wanted to get lean. I want to get in better shape. I've met you. Let's take it seriously. So obviously I'm taking some steroids, trying to get bigger and I'm doing indie shows. I have no piss test, no, nothing to, so I don't have anything to worry about. I'm freely allowed to take what I want. Plus I think I, even at back then I had a prescription for testosterone. So, I mean, I've been smart about doing it the right way. So I never got charged with, you know, obviously, uh, fucking I end up getting charged with that stuff later on anyway, but at, at the time and place, I thought I was pretty smart covering my ass on stuff. So I would always have a prescription. If I was carrying anything, I could quickly swallow it. If it was, if, you know, enough, but obviously, you know, so Machigo and I have a huge falling out in, uh, be right before the camera guys come down. And then they come down and I tell them, Machigo's pissed off that she's not going to be coming to Canada. We don't think because she has a domestic violence on her record. And she doesn't want to go through the process of calling Canada and asking permission. So she makes us buy her airplane tickets, pay for her hotel, all her stuff, and book her off of work so she can come to Canada. And that was what that fight was about. And I told her in the bill, they don't, they don't show any of it. I said, someone's, you've got to fucking watch your mouth. I said, someone's going to slap the shit out because what she was doing was she was basically making claims that with these girls that she was wrestling with, uh, that she didn't want to do a lot of stuff and that she was my girlfriend. So she should be going over and she was trying to push that on. And some of my friends were like, listen, you're not even from Texas and Machigo's not really a good worker and she's not going to go over because she's with you. Do you agree with that? And I said, no, I don't. I said, she should pay her dues and have to fucking do it. It's you're the promoter. If you want her to job out, job out. She's like, you're not protecting me and you're making me lose matches. I could be I'm better than these girls. I said, you don't go to training though. You, you thought because you fucked me and all of a sudden everything's just going to come to you, hand it to you. And that's not the way it is. You need to train. I didn't learn how to wrestle because I'm Stu Hart's grandson. I learned how to wrestle because I spent fucking, you know, 20 years of gymnastics and diving and training and all these other things, cross training and doing, you know, so I was safe and I was reliable. And it's a lot of work to become Harry Smith. It's a lot of work to become John Morrison or AJ Styles or Rey Mysterio Jr. Fucking these are like, you know, she didn't understand the work that went into the wrestling and she thought it was nepotism stuff type of thing where if she's with me, she gets to get a free pass. That didn't happen. The next day, the camera guys show up. She's living in a house for free. She, she's got no responsibilities. We're selling weed. And that's the only thing I give Machiko a lot of credit. She rode in a car with 40 pounds of weed in my car with me and her. And we took her car from, from here all the way to California, picked up a bunch of weed that was still on the stems. And it was still on the branches. I didn't even have time to cut it and dry it yet. I just went there. I knew my friend was changing locations. He's like, hey, I got all this extra weed sitting here right now. He's like, if you want to come pick it up, and fucking take it back you can and she jumped in the car and she balls to the wall drove 40 hours each way or whatever it was and we went and picked that up our car smelled so bad we couldn't even hide it we just drove it was do or die i'm like listen it's weed i'm gonna put my hands in god and if we make it back we make it back so we made it back and we did that twice and the third time we drove to colorado she had a meltdown about this documentary and kicked me in the face with a pair of boots on while we were driving and i pulled her out of the fucking car i did i grabbed her by her hair and i pulled her out of the fucking car and i told her i said and we so and the cops came and they happened to see her throw something at me and it looked like a fucking razor blade what it was it was one of our it was like a big silver tray that we roll our weed on in the car so she threw that but it looked like a fucking weapon or something so cops caught called 
We ended up getting it put in jail for three days. They never found the weed in the tires. They just found the weed that was in the litter box, underneath the litter box. So we got charged for that. And somehow those charges got dropped. I don't even know how it happened, but I mean, her went to court and we had to get the cat out of the fuck. So at that stage, the relationship was starting to deteriorate. And I told the camera guys, I said, I'd like to get away from Oxford for a bit and get a break after she was not allowed in the country. So when she came, she flew all the way up. And now she, I'm like, you know, you this is on video. You made me look really bad the night before. She's like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm stressed out. I've never left the country. This is my dream to come to Canada. I don't think I'm going to go, you know, but I, I'm like, why didn't she just find out? Yeah, you, we were willing to pay a lawyer. All you had to do is make two phone calls and you would have been, you would have been allowed to come in the country because you didn't, you didn't do any maintenance on that. You just took it, took a chance and wasted my fucking money. And I was excited to have her come to Canada, meet my parents. We've been dating for over a year at that time. She was going to see some of my other cats that I had in Canada. Cause at that stage, I still had all, I had half my cats. The, the other girls took the other half. So I had a sanctuary where I kept like 30 of my cats to still try to maintain my business. And of course my wife and the ex-girlfriend took all of the best ones, all of the, the best breeders, the best mothers and all the stud males, they took all of them. So I was left with all the mixes that I had started doing Mancoons and Persians and Burmese and Persians. And like, uh, some, I was trying to do uh, a serval eventually started doing bangles and Persians. And so I was mixing a lot of different ones. I started doing a Scottish fold, hairless Persian. So those are all mixes. They take years to do. Like you can't just make a mix because it takes like three or four breedings to get the mix to lose its nose. If you want a flat face for a Persian, or if you want certain colors, you have to breed certain colors and you got to keep that cat locked in a room because you can't have the other cats that are different color schemes coming into that room. Otherwise it'll fuck up the next. So it's a complicated process. And she got into the cat breeding with me. And that was one of the things I, I give her credit for. She still has six of my cats much ago. I brought her down six thousands of dollars. These Persians, each one. And because she wasn't smart about selling the cats to people, she ended up getting them all fixed. So you can think one Persian cat, usually two grand a pop. They have three to five, you know, per twice a year, that's 10 kittens a year. She has three or four mothers and two males. She probably could have made 20,000, $30,000 a year on those cats. If she was smart, Michelle and Faye, I made a hundred thousand in one year selling Persian cats. So wow, that's so yeah. good. I have an all black cat. So what if I want an all black with like the white paws and the tuxedo? Is that a special type of breeding I have to get, I have to do? Everyone the tuxedos you can you can get a persian tuxedo one of my exes had one but they're they're hard to find you have to you have to go to uh the breeders and look at the pictures of what they have in inventory and i i find a lot of those websites are are fucking bullshit i've been having i've been having a lot of problems trying to find persian cat breeders that are reliable but most of them what i see now uh they're they're pretty expensive they're like two twenty five hundred bucks to three thousand dollars a cat so when I was doing it, they were worth probably a thousand a pop. Now they've gone up a lot. So I, that was another thing with me and her. I just thought it was, uh, it was, it was, it was wrong of her to act like I never did anything for her. She had nothing good to say, considering we broke up about six months after that whole situation happened. And then she came back to me two years after that. And she came back and, and we had, it was hard to get a hold of her because she didn't want to talk to me. She was really mad. And I said, I don't want to live my life in as an enemy of somebody. I said, would you come, would you at least pick up the phone and talk to me? And I had Nick Gage call her and I had a guy named Orlando call her and a few of my friends called her. And I think Masada, I was trying to get him to get a hold of her. Wait, he did knew you say Masada also? Yeah. Yeah. Masada, oh. also, another good friend of mine back in the day. Oh, Remember, he works I, with me. Yeah. I know he yeah. is. 
really nice guy, a really nice guy too. And it was nice. And a guy she dated before me was Scott Summers. And he was another guy that was with Machiko. And when I met Machiko, I didn't know she was dating him and she brought me to a show. So she picked me up and brought me to the show. He didn't even show up for the show because he thought there was heat between me and him. And she'd already kind of, I'm like, you didn't tell me this is a guy you're dating. This is a guy I'm wrestling. She's like, Oh, we had a bad ending and a falling out. I'm like, you're bringing me into your drama. I'm like, I don't, I don't know anybody in Texas this is my first month out here wrestling. And I'm now I'm hearing all these different stories and who she's been with and that she has a domestic violence on her record. And she lived with a guy named Darren who was with her and he had a girlfriend or a wife. So she lived with another couple for a year from what I was told or something like along the line. So she was aware of a polyamorous relationship. She knew my, knew my wife owned an escort agency and she knew my other wife was a porn star who did some prostitution, but she mostly did lesbian stuff and lesbian videos and stuff. That's how she made her money before I met her. So she had no problems with any of this until later. Now she's talking shit and judging everybody and saying they're pieces of shit and she hates them and she never met them and they were nice to her. And that's one of the reasons they pulled the plug on me was because they said, the girl you're going to see is an ungrateful bitch. We just gave her a free cat. And she didn't even bother saying thank you to Michelle on the phone when they talked because all the girls I date know each other. My wife knows my girlfriends. I have those girls are all, I wouldn't say best friends, but they all communicate. They're all aware of each other. I don't lie to anybody. I don't keep secrets like that. So sometimes girls don't want to hear it. But to me, if I say it off the hop, you can't hold me responsible for something I lied about if I didn't lie. And so that was sort of the, you know, it was awkward sometimes, but at the same time, the truth will set you free. And if you warn a girl off the beginning, she's accepted that usually they're pretty you know, fair about that situation. My wife was with me for six years and a great lady most of the time, but she had, she was, uh, she had done a lot of drugs and she full before I met her and cause she was, she had a lot of money and she didn't give a fuck. She was, her dad was a biker and he had passed away and he, she'd basically been, uh, protected and they were very powerful. Uh, the bikers in Canada, especially, you know, and I'm friends with a lot of them too. And so it was a good group of people for me to be with, uh, to show them that I was safe and I was someone that their daughter could hang out with. So I kept her clean and she was doing really well for years. And then uh, she said she had met a couple of clients that were guys that are big money clients and they wanted to buy her out for the year. And would I care? And I said, well, no, I've met a girl in, Me I've met a girl in uh, Texas. And I said, Michelle wants to go to California and starts to grow weed. I've been growing weed for 20 years right so i have a big and this is all on video i have all this shit on video for the camera guys so i've been growing in california i have a few big warehouses down there they make they make some significant cash but i mean you're splitting it between three people so the money's obviously not as good as it should be but still if we're making three or four hundred thousand a year on this type of stuff and they have their own dispensary and they have their own license and they have their own co-op not just a grow-up but a co-op so they have a multi-level operation which is like three or four farms or six farms all together each one has a plant count and stuff so i videotaped this extensively so everyone in calgary or edmonton knew that i would go to california to do my marijuana business because uh, in canada marijuana was still somewhat illegal so the only place you could really go and smoke and have a license was California. You're talking 15 years ago, 10 years ago up to, you know, so, and there was all these other legal states at the time. So she went down there and she wanted to stay down there. So Michelle was going to go live in uh, California and I was going to start doing more wrestling stuff with Machico. And Faye was going to take one of her clients who was paying her $250,000 to buy her out, like just buy her up for the year. So she doesn't have to do any other calls. And she said, I, I like the guy. He's an older guy. I just want to get out of the business. After the car accident, she wasn't moving around so well. She had a bad car accident. Of course, I take care of her. No credit for that. I stuck with her. Michelle stuck with her. Uh, we ran our business while she was in the hospital and took care of everything she had. So when she came back, she was fine. 
And but she could never go into her house again. Her house had all these stairs. She couldn't walk up the stairs. So she ended up just living at the hotel. And so now we have a hotel. We have five rooms at the hotel. We have four different girls that live in the hotel that all work this, that all work the hotel. And they're making a lot of money, these girls. My wife made probably 300000 that year cash off calls. Most of her calls are truckers in the morning from five in the morning till fucking eight in the morning. And those Wait, are her truckers? Truckers would pay that kind of money. Truckers have that kind of money in Canada. I mean, you're what's 350 bucks, right? 500 bucks for an hour, I think. Oh, is I what thought it was like a thousand an hour. I'm like, I'm thinking no. like high end, high end. No, okay, no, never no, mind. My bad. Those kind of prices because the competition is different there because everyone's based on a price based on the escort agency that you work for. Backpage wasn't a lot, there wasn't Backpage back then, there wasn't Craigslist. So, yeah. You Call an agency to get a girl, and then the agency would find a dispatcher. The dispatcher would find the girl closest to you and a driver. So my job was a driver. I never wanted to be a pimp. I didn't want any money from girls. I, I thought they made their money. You keep it. I make my money selling cats. You guys introduced me to all these clients. Half the half the clients that bought cats were guys that were fucking girls that worked for my wife. Those are really? all guys. Yeah, because they go into these, they go into the suites and they see these girls twice a month, sometimes twice a week, depending on how much money they have, and they have, they see the kittens. So they want to they want to buy a kitten and then they bring the kitten back to hang out with the mother when they fucking make their calls. So I had some guys that had been coming for two, three years. They had a two year old cat that they bought off me two years before for a thousand bucks. And then they go see the girl and the girl and the mother cat still remembers her son because the son comes every week with the dad to see his, you know, to see the girl. So it's like and these guys are paying extra money to dress them up. And I, I have a clothing line and I make outfits. So sometimes I'm making money on guys wanting to get an outfit or the girls are skinning them for, you know, because they all have their own deals. And I don't interfere. I've never talked to half their clients, except if I met them in passing when they're walking through a hallway, you know, and then sometimes I would do couples calls and my wife and I would be say she'd take it. She'd have like guys that didn't want to cheat on their wife. So they'd call and say, hey, my wife caught me cheating or my wife caught me picking up an escort. Uh, she wants to be involved or if she's getting a divorce. Can you hook us up with a couples call? So I do some couples calls and that was significant money. Cause that's an, that's a, that's a different call. So we'd both make a thousand bucks for a couples call, maybe two hours. And that was so, and they were like, Oh, well you're making money in this now too. And I'm like, guys, I've done maybe 10 couples calls my whole life. I, I did this to make it easy for you guys. And I'm usually stuck with some fucking girl. That's, you know, not the best looking and her husband's happy to get fucking me to take care of his wife for two hours while he's fucking having fun with one or two of the girls that are in a The girls I always hired were in immaculate, you know, immaculate, clean uh, and in great shape and always going to the gym. I don't put up with that shit. They're in the gym every day. There's no drugs in the house. The only drug they could do would be marijuana. Um, and again, because they're all in shape, every single one of them tried steroids and that's where their mood swings. I would, I would, I would account for a lot of the mood swings being like that. But if you tell one girl something, the other girl wants to do the same thing. And if you tell one girl she charged you with rape, all of a sudden the next girl's like, oh, that's terrible. How could they do that? Well, when they get pissed off, what do you think their next move is? All of a sudden, Machigo five years later is like, oh, well, he tried to rape me. I didn't want to have sex with him. I, the, he did this to me. He beat me up. It's like, you had five years to say that. He never said a fucking thing until all of a sudden your career is over in wrestling. You got nothing going on. You got sour grapes that I didn't take you back. And you want to complain to the world about something I did. And then that's like, okay, well, that's fine. And then, but when they start lying, like Machigo said, I had her passport. That, that's, that's not, that never happened. That was a lie. So they made that. So I looked like I was trapping that girl in fucking Florida. She was down there. She was living in a mansion for a month and she was going in and out of the mansion and waking up the owner of the house at night with a brand new Jaguar that we gave her to use. If she was doing MMA, once we found out she wasn't training, she was going to bars trying to be a stripper again and do landscaping. We said, we're not, 
fucking sponsoring you. You're 30, you're 26 years old. You have three kids, go home or find someone else to take care of you out here. We're, we're finished. And I took the car and went back home. When I took the car, I found her passport in the car. I drove all the way back to Florida from fucking Dallas to Florida. The next two weeks, I had to go back and forth anyway. So when I got back, I saw her. I said, here's your passport. Gave it to her. She, if she'd been arrested twice. How the fuck did they identify her the first time? John Doe is what happens if you walk in a place, you get arrested. No fingerprints on file. And she's not from that country. So how would Florida know who she was to identify her unless she had her ID and her passport? Obviously, she had her passport. It also doesn't take very much sense to go to the embassy and say that you've lost your passport. It's an emergency. I need to go back to my family. I have three little kids at home. She would have got a passport within three to five days. She never called her parents and asked to go home. Never called her sister. Not one of those interviews or messages said, I'm coming home. I miss you. Or how are my kids doing? I miss my kids. I'm such a good mother. She didn't want to be a mother anymore. Her, the last kid she had, she got septic. They cut her. She had three, uh, three C-sections. The last C-section she had, they cut a piece of her stomach lining and it got, uh, it got infected. So when they sewed her back up, a piece of her uh, intestine was uh, fucking nicked. So her bowels leaked into her stomach. She had to get an emergency surgery after that. She didn't even think she'd live. She was so stressed out and tired. She said both the husbands she had, her boyfriend she had were abusive. And that she did drugs with them. Well, could, she, could we help her out? Three kids. I'm trying to be nice to her. Three kids thinking this is going to be an opportunity. I'm a MMA fighter. I've been training MMA. My dad had me doing boxing. I went and talked to her dad. Her dad said she'd been, he'd been training her since she was a kid. All this. And she could fight. She was a tough, tough chick. So I'm like, fuck, dude. She might go in and actually bang it out with some of these girls. They make 30000 50000 a fight. I know people in UFC. I know people in Bellator. I know the U.S. top team guys. I'm friends with Kenny Lester. He's got a bunch of friends down there. So if we bring her down there and she does well in MMA, awesome. It's my first student training MMA. And I wanted to train MMA because I thought the wrestling's fun, but I wanted to get some people doing other stuff. She never did shit. The whole point of that should have been fucking made is she doesn't want to do what she's required to do to get sponsored. And if she's not going to do what she's supposed to do, then why would we continue to pay for her? She's basically holding us hostage. Like, okay, you're going to pay for my house. You're going to pay for my car. You're going to pay for my fake tits. You're going to pay for my food. And I'm going to fucking sit here and go fuck bikers at the fucking uh, local bars and drive around in a hundred thousand dollar car and wake up the owner of the fucking house. The owner is a lawyer, like 60 years old, said we could stay at his house. His son was training with me. And she's in like, you know, beautiful wintergreen property in Florida and gated communities. You can't go in or out of the property without seeing the guard at the front and they make a call. So every time she goes out, she comes back, she wakes the owner up after midnight and he's wondering what's this girl doing at his house who doesn't have any bills. Why is she out till three in the fucking morning every night when she's supposed to be training? Called my dad and called a few of my friends and said, this girl's not serious. We took her down to Chasen's. Chasen, I said, you got a place for her to stay? He said, yeah, I'll get her a place to stay. She got kicked out of there within two weeks or three weeks of there. And they just breeze over that. Then she gets arrested not once, but twice. You tell me if you're arrested in fucking the States for anything, the first person they should call is Canada and they should escort you to the border and they take you out of the country. They extradite you. First time you're arrested. The second time they should have taken her out. So if you want to go back and blame anybody, blame the people that arrested her not once, but twice. If you want to do an investigation, then someone should have pulled the cameras. I've seen where she left and imagine that hitting. And if you know me, I'm in another fucking state and another country because I was in Mexico and I was in California at the time. I was dating a girl who worked with Homeland Security. 
Her mom was working with Homeland Security. I've never been able to say this because I had to ask them permission because it was part of a major investigation. So I asked them, I said, can I at least tell my side of the story now where this is the reason I said I was never a suspect? And this is the reason the cops said I was never a suspect. So everyone that's out there doing this witch hunt, you're asking this question. If I was never a suspect, then why the fuck is there a conversation, let alone a documentary about me maybe being a murderer of some fucking mother of three who we tried to help out? And not one fucking positive thing said about me or my career or what, six years of trying to rehab my life or fix my life or take accountability. I spent a year in jail during COVID. 24-hour confinement. No commissary. No fucking Wait, books. Why were you there? Fire. I totally forgot. Why were you in jail for the year? I'm so sorry to cut you off. For, so what happens if you get charged in Texas, you're on probation after that. I had some charges in Texas here. So after five years of probation, I moved my probation from Texas to Philadelphia. During COVID, I was dating Maria Manic. Maria and I were driving from city to city to city for all of our Ring of Honor bookings. I had some steroids in the car and some weed in the car, and I had a lot of money on me. So when I got pulled over and I gave a homeless guy some Wendy's, but it's a hand-to-hand -hand transaction. And in Virginia, I guess a lot of the ways they do drug deals is the guy will act like he's coming from a drive through restaurant and he'll hand the guy a bag like he's giving. So they check the bag. Obviously, it's fries and a fucking hamburger. They don't find anything, but they search my car. I tell them ahead of time I have marijuana. I have a prescription. I have a license from, from Pennsylvania to smoke. They said it doesn't matter. This is Virginia. That's possession. You have more than a certain amount of money. That's distribution. You have... And then I had... Uh, bottle of steroids so they got me on that had my name on it with a prescription they said doesn't matter they said i have two passports that's a fucking violation because they thought i had a fake passport which i didn't so that like six new charges during covid in virginia is really strict and they confiscated my money and my car and my cats because i got arrested with the cats in the car so and i, I had my cats with me because we we're traveling state to state to state so i had four cats in the car with me at the time so um basically that situation you don't get bond in Virginia. You get an ankle monitor. So while you're waiting in jail, you got to get a place and you got to get a residence and you have to have somebody from the courts go to the house and they zone the house out because your ankle monitor, you cannot leave your zone. If you leave your zone, it beeps. They send the fucking cops to your house right there. You're arrested for leaving their property line. You can't take your garbage out. You can't walk your dog. You can't go to the store unless you call them and get permission. And during COVID, everything was closed. So when I went to jail, it was like two months of just sitting there waiting. And finally, Maria was nice enough to get a place in Virginia, which we didn't live in. We lived in Florida at the time. I had to get a house there, six-month lease, and wait. And while I'm waiting, there's no phone calls, and probation's closed in Pennsylvania because of COVID. So I couldn't call them to tell them what happened. It's a violation. You violate probation, they send you back to where your original charges were, Texas. So now I'm back in Texas with these new charges. I'm on probation for six years or five years. If you violate while you're on probation, they generally give you all of that time now as jail time. So now I'm facing five full years in jail. I've already done four and a half years probation. So now I'm going to do another five years. That's what it's looking at. So in Virginia, I got really lucky. I got two great lawyers. And then I, so my lawyers went in and they fought it and um, they beat everything. And they got me a one year, uh, one year supervision or one year something uh, transfer probation in Virginia. Virginia and then you got to move so then Texas has to take me back though because now Texas is going to violate me for the probation violation so that's the five years plus Virginia I beat that went back to Texas and uh Tyson Kidd was nice enough at that time uh there was there was some significant uh 
lawyer and things that were needed to be done. And my aunt Ellie and a few people stepped up uh, and they, they made sure whatever the lawyer needed at the time. And my lawyer was really good. It was supposed to be like $50,000 that they wanted because I was friends with the girl from Homeland Security and her mom. And it's a small community here. They said, listen, we'll do it for fucking basically nothing. Like a couple thousand bucks. Like it was under two grand. It should have been. So he went to court and fought all of this. He turned out to be very good friends with the judge from years ago. He was on her campaign when she got hired, my lawyer. So he was fuck. He said, I trust the guy. He's a good guy. I talk to him all the time. He's a Christian, believes in God. And I know, I know people that are guilty and I know people that aren't. He's not a meth head. I can tell he's an athlete. He's not, you don't just do meth, quit, start, stop, start, stop. Either are or you're not. He says he's not a drug addict. I can see that in him and I'm going to vouch for him. So he made a deal with the lawyer and they gave me another, they just, they said, listen, we're just going to give you the year you've lost added that plus the year you have left. So you got two years probation again, finish it. And everything's back to normal. So I was like, fuck dude, that's a miracle. I was facing another seven to 10 years in jail. I'm facing 20 originally. Now I'm facing six. I got that beat. Then I'm now back five years later, facing another five to seven years in jail. I beat that. Now I have to wait to see if I can finish this probation, but now I got to live in Texas again. So after six months of being in Texas, I, I met a lady named Brenda here and she's been taking care of me and uh, got all my taxes done, got all my fucking, my, all the, all my outfits made. I, I got really organized thinking that, you know, I'm here, I'm out in ankle monitor. I got to take these special classes every day. I had to do six months of classes every day, uh, online classes for my probation. And you can't fail a piss test every two weeks. You got to go up and piss. And I, I did this for six years, all through all this shit, never got any credit was wrestling while I was on probation. While I was a fugitive, I was wrestling for people. Now I beat all the charges. I have everything set up. I thought my life might come back to normal. I can't get a fucking booking anywhere because this documentary came out. It just smeared the shit out of me. I hope you're enjoying the ride on Crazy Train with Jasmine St. Clair podcast. So if you are, do me a huge, huge favor. Woo! Please go ahead. Go on to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever, but Apple's great. Give me a nice rating and review. Send me a screenshot and I promise you I will send you a special goodie bag. So please rate and review Crazy Train with Jasmine St. Clair podcast. And in exchange for that, once I see the DM with the review and your name and address, I will get those gift bags out to you. I'm not going to tell you what's in it. 